this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. (laughs) You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. So before we start anything, I don't have a story or anything, but I just want to say for people who don't live where we do, here's what a typical, well, okay, it wasn't a typical day, but the other morning I got up and I almost stepped on a dead mouse Mm. on my bedroom floor courtesy of my cat Milo. Oh, what a good boy. And then when I was getting dressed, uh, there was a tick on my back <sighs> that I couldn't reach. Ugh. And you know, you have to pull them straight out so their little heads come out. Ugh. So I called my health center and they unenthusiastically told me yes, I could come and have it removed. Although the woman who removed it when I was finally able to go that afternoon was very nice. So I went to get it removed and I said to her when I was getting it off, it looked like it was kind of moving around and she goes, oh yeah, it's little legs are just waggling and waggling. Uh. She said. And she gave me one of those tick removal things that's easier to use than tweezers. But yeah. then I had what I thought were bug bites on my arms, back of my neck, all over. And I said, well, I'm here. Do you have anything you recommend for these bug bites? And she said, those aren't bug bites. That's brown tail moth rash. And what happens is the caterpillars for the brown tail moth have these little hairs that get in the air and you can't even see them. Mm -hmm. And they blow around, especially when it's hot and dry like it's been. And with climate change, they hadn't been up here before. And uh, because I dry my clothes outside, was mowing the lawn and all sorts of stuff, there were multiple places. So she gave me... A recipe for some just over-the-counter different things that you mix together. There were like four ingredients. And said, you can try this, and if it doesn't work, because nothing, like I Benadryl gel and stuff, nothing Mm. works on them. She said, if you don't, if this doesn't work, there's a prescription thing. We can, but see if this works. So later that day, I went to the Walgreens Pharmacy that's closest to me in Oakland, Maine. And the shelves with that stuff, with all the ingredients, were literally bear yeah literally bear so i went up the street to the oakland pharmacy which is a smaller local pharmacy ditto for there although i was able to snag a tube of lidocaine which seems to work okay but there were all these people who had prescriptions and they Mm -hmm. were out the pharmacist said they had sold 150 bottles of the prescription stuff just that day and there were like 10 or 12 people in this little pharmacy when i was in there and every single one of them had the rash and, oh my and there, god. And there was this woman, obviously from away, and I'll tell you how I know that, who who was like screaming at the pharmacist. And she's like, Well, what am I supposed to do? I was promised you'd have it. What am I supposed to do? And he's like, Well, we didn't know this many people would come and get it. And I and I said, because I was over still scanning the shelves, hoping something would miraculously appear, and I said to her, Well, you know, we're all in the same boat. And she goes, Yes, but I was promised that they would have this when I called this morning. And by now it's like <laughs> four or five o'clock. And I said, well, just because you were promised and the rest of us weren't doesn't mean ours itch any less. And she goes, well, where I come from, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And I just stopped listening because where she's not where she comes Please. from. And she you know can what, go though? fucking If she her. wanted it that bad, she would have dragged her ass in there in the morning. Well, maybe she had other it. things. Maybe she had other things to do, like eat bonbons on her you know 40 foot boat or something but anyway you know oh go ahead it sounds like 
Everybody, like everyone I know from Facebook in that area seems to be yes. ha- having Even people who don't realize too, so. it, like my friend Gina came over and she goes, well, I just have bug bites. And she showed me and I said, no, those aren't bug bites. Those are it. <laughs> That's it. Oh you have God. it. That's why I don't go outside. Yeah, I know. But sometimes you have to. But you have a more, much more interesting story to tell, don't you? About uh, something that happened to you. Yeah. Something that happened to me. So where where I work, my new job, is not in a big box anymore, which is nice in a lot of ways. But I'm on a busy road. We're on Route 1, which is a busy road. Especially and this I'm time actually, of year. The business I work at is between Prompto and then a ski and sport place. But there's like trees and stuff because it's... You know, it's still in the country, kind of. Yeah. Even though it's, you know, that's it's rural-ish. Yeah. It, it was super, super hot. It must have been Tuesday that this happened. Yeah. It might have been Wednesday. So it was super hot, so I had the door open, which I don't usually... I went back and forth with the door open. It- I had the door open, but we have this motion detector that goes ding dong, you know, like yeah, when yeah. there's something near it. A lot of times I'm in the back doing something and I have this, you know, one of those bullnose mirrors so I can see the front door. So I saw a person standing there in the doorway and he wasn't coming in. So I went out there to see if it was a customer. And it was some guy who was wearing like just shorts and a tank top and I, sneakers, I guess. I didn't really know what he had on the street. But but he was not, like, dressed like somebody who was out and about doing business. He was very, very dark tan and very sweaty. And he had the, like, his eyes were really dilated. He goes, uh, do you have a cup of water? And I thought about it, and I'm like, well, I don't really have a cup, but I have an empty water bottle. So I gave, I filled the water bottle with water. And he didn't come in the whole time. He was, like, standing, like, right outside. So I went in the bathroom, got the water, and gave it to him. And I, all the time I'm thinking, this is probably... You don't know what else you're supposed to do, you know? You're right. like, is this guy dangerous? Because, I mean, I, people come in there all the time. Right. And I'm right. the only one there most right. of the time. So Well, normally the type of place you work, which is a... What is it? Like a granite it's counter? It's tile. Yeah. Yeah, tile and it's, granite. It's not know? the kind of place that would lend itself to danger, like a convenience store no. or something. No, it's not. So I gave him the, the bottle of water, and then he just, like, stood there. And then he goes... I need to talk to you privately. <laughs> and I said, no. I said, no, you no, you don't. And then he just stood there again. And he's like, no one wants to talk to me. No one wants to talk. And that was when I started, I started to get like really scared. Yes. Like, because of the way he was acting, he was just like, really like, uh, uh. So then I went and grabbed my phone. And I'm like, I guess I should call the police. If he- Did you and, say but, that I'm- out loud? or No, I didn't. No, no, I just went and picked up my phone. Right. And then when I went back, he was gone. He was walking out in the parking lot. And then I saw him out by the side of the road. And so I locked the door. It was about 1230. When, can I ask you a question? When you, quote unquote, went to grab your phone, did you, you oh. stepped out of the room? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That would have made me nervous just doing that. Because I would have thought, okay, he can he can come in and close the door while I'm doing I know. this. But, but I could have run out the back. There's a back door. So. Yeah, okay. As soon as I saw that he was out by the road, I locked the front door. And I said, I'm going to go to lunch now. And I locked the back door and I left. And I usually put a note on the door that says I'll be back in 15 so you minutes. Went, so you went out the back door to go to lunch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I walked it. around. It's a little Cape house that our office right. is in. It has two little rooms on the second floor that we don't really use. Does it have its own parking lot? Yeah, it's got like a parking lot in the front. It's not really a parking lot. It's like a U-shaped thing. So the other businesses aren't like 
connected no. or no, share a no, parking it's lot. The other businesses, there's a bunch of trees and vegetation in between, and we can kind of see each other. Like in the winter, uh, my coworker said, oh, be careful in the winter because Prompto can see into our bathroom. I was like, okay. but in Maybe the summer, you it's... should put a friggin' Venetian blind up <laughs> or something. <laughs> I like you to be able to. But anyways, so I left. I took off in the car, and he didn't really seem to. He was a little bit further down the road in front of Rogers, and I wondered if. What's Rogers? Oh, it's the sporting place. Rogers Ski and Sport. I don't know if he even noticed that my car was. I don't know if what he noticed. Right. And then when I came back about a half hour later, I drove behind just to make sure he wasn't like anywhere around did you tell anyone but like your boss um, i told him later um and he's right. like well next time you should call the police or call me and i'll call the police and i'm like okay but then i felt and we always talk about the gift of fear and everything yeah. and that well, was I like do. yeah the only other time that i was that scared of a person was once I was walking down the street, 4th Street in the Old Port. It was in the middle of the day. For some reason, I think I was like 18 or 19, but I might have been a little bit older. I think I was doing something for a job. So that's why I think I was, it was when I was at Portland School of Art and I was on an errand because I was a secretary there for work study. But I was walking down the street. We have brick sidewalks and sometimes there's steps that go down when you're crossing the street and then steps that go up. So I was at the top. I was about to go down the, you know, the step into the, to cross the street, side street, and this big, big guy, like, probably well over six feet, and he was burly, and he had, like, a long beard, and he was, you know, unkempt. He stepped in front of me, and we were, like, face to face, because I was kind of on the sidewalk, and he was down. He said, I need mo- I need some money, and I said, I don't, I don't have any money, and he's, he just, like, stood there. You should have said, join the fucking club, fatso. <laughs> yeah. He wouldn't let me buy. And I could see he was, like, like his face turned really red, and he started clenching his fists. Oh, jeez. And he wouldn't, like, he just stood there. And I couldn't, I, w- I didn't know what to do. And I just remember there was a guy who was painting a building, like, right there. He wasn't very far away. And he was, like, and I had the feeling that the guy was just ignoring it on purpose mm-hmm. and it annoyed me like yes. i felt like he wasn't gonna do anything right and the guy said guys like you know i'm a vietnam veteran and i fought for this country and no one will do anything for me and i said i'm sorry i don't have any money you know i'm like look at me and he's like and then he just like stood and then he finally like stepped aside and let me go by but i was like super yeah super scared. like what do you do and in I a situation also, like, like that pissed Right. Because there were people around and nobody said anything. And here I was, I was like a young, young woman and probably 105 pounds. See, and it's hard because you don't, even in a situation like that, you don't want to quote unquote make a scene and stuff. I think nowadays, if I were in that situation, I would like yell, can someone help me? This man is bothering me or something like that. But I don't think I know, 20 or I know. 30 years ago I would have done that. No. You don't know what to do. And just like with this guy the other day, I'm like, well, should I call the police? With I mean, and, it seems so stupid to call them when he's not really doing anything. He's just, and he didn't try to come in. But right. he's and, just super, super creepy. Like, you tell people that story, or even some of our listeners may think, well, big deal. 
what happened, but if people would read The Gift of Fear, your instincts, and that's what The Gift of Fear is, your instincts Mm -hmm. that there's something very wrong about a situation, something very dangerous about it, even if you can't articulate what it is, you should follow. And granted, I don't know what you would do in the situation with that guy, because it's like, what if I send him off? What if I say, please leave right now? What if that's the straw that breaks the camel's back for the guy mm-hmm. or something, you know? Yeah. I guess one of the things is just always have your phone with you. I have on my phone, I have a, a panic alarm app Ooh. that I probably would never be able to get to if I were actually threatened. But part of it is I tell myself, if I just push this and it makes that noise, or the one on my car keys, if it just makes that noise, that's going to be enough to startle the person and maybe make them leave or something, Mm -hmm. you know? And that same day, there was a weird incident in Saco, which is the town next to where you are, where some guy tried to steal some guy's car, like tried to pull the guy (gasps) out of his car and steal it. And you had texted me about your thing, and then I saw that on the news. And he tried to steal the wrong car, because the guy whose car it was started hit punching him in the face and the guy ran off yes and i'm like oh i wonder if that's becky's guy but looking at it it wasn't i wondered it too but it wasn't like my guy had no i just feel like if you're walking around in just a tank top and like shorts with no wallet no not i mean he didn't have anything it seemed like he had nothing with him i was like where did he come from and what like maybe he was just walking up route one you know, either he was homeless or lived He it. seemed like he was, I wouldn't say he was mentally ill. I would say he was probably on drug. He seemed like he was on some kind of drug. Yeah. Just the way he's like, no one wants to talk. So it made me wonder if he had already been in either Prompto or some other place where they right. told him to get the fuck out. But I would but say. I bad. I gave him water. I, mean, I, you know, like, I know. Well, he, you know. That was nice. Yeah. But if something like that ever would happen again call the police and just say, I know this is going to sound weird because you know how they poo-poo things, but there's a guy, you know, I work at such and such on Route 1 and a guy just came in asking for water and something just seemed very off about him and just so you can keep an eye out on Route 1 and, you know, something like that because people are afraid to do that. You know what I'm saying? I know they are. Because people don't want to be embarrassed and they don't want to feel stupid. And it's like, well, he creeped me out, but... And then the police don't help a lot of the time because they're like, well, we can't do anything. Well, he didn't commit a crime. I know. Kind of thing. And it's like, I'm not asking for him to be arrested. I'm... Or I would... Which is so want stupid, him but I feel bad. Yeah, for right. just the poor guy but, who knows why he's walking around like that. But the thing that creeped me out was when he's like... I need to talk to you but, privately. But, like, yes, uh, that would be very creepy. Uh, that would be very creepy. And also, he talks about this in The Gift of Fear, too. Particularly women are more concerned about the other person's feelings exactly. th- than their own. And it's like, yeah, I don't want him to get hassled by the police or something if he's not doing anything. But on the other hand, he's bothering you. So the fact that you're being bothered, the fact that he's acting inappropriately with you and can pose a danger is more important than whatever may happen with him. It's mm, true. You know, yes. you have to protect yourself first and... Not worry about some theoretical thing that may happen to this guy who could be posing a danger. 
Exactly. You know, despite mm-hmm. the flaws of the of the law enforcement system and how people get hassled and killed who shouldn't, when it's an issue of where you feel that your safety is, you got you have to concern yourself more about your own safety than about his safety. His safety isn't yes. more important than your safety, is what I'm trying to say. That's my Gavin DeBecker gift of fear speech for the night. Okay. So yeah. do you have an update? I have a very quick update to episode, our recent episode about Sarah Everard. The London police officer who was charged in her kidnap and murder has pleaded guilty to kidnapping and raping her in March. Wayne Cousins, 48, he took responsibility for her death, but he did not enter a formal plea on a murder charge. Hmm. That was at the Old Bailey... I feel like I know it, even though I've never been there. I know. And that was four days ago, so that was June 8th. 8th. And I will keep you updated. I won't go through the whole thing. You can listen to the episode. It was... I can't remember. Just a few episodes ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a main mini. Ooh! Well, you know what's going to happen. I'm going to play the theme song. You're going to play this. Okay. And again, that's from main.gov website. Yes. The song. I'm sure everybody wants to look it up and, and listen I'm to it. Give, I'm, I'm, I know you're since we're using, credit. yes. Okay, so I got all my information for this story from the Portland Press Herald. Ah. Well, you know. Uh, first of all, when I was researching this story, I found that there have been many over the years random attacks in Portland because the story is about a recent spate of random attacks. Mm. But I'm going to focus on the latest bunch, which started in May. There were a couple of incidents in October of 2020, but Portland police don't think they were related to these latest attacks. But I'll talk about those at the end of my, okay. my little thing here. On Wednesday, May 5th, of 2021 for those of you listening in the future at about 9 <laughs> or the 40, past <laughs> about 9:40 p.m. a woman was walking on Gray Street in the West End and I used to live on Gray Street and when I read about this attack I was surprised to see that it happened almost in front of my old wow, house. Wow, it, it could have right been you door. if it had been 30 I, years ago. It I been actually you. emailed my ex-husband to ask him about it, and he never emailed me back, but it was just tonight mm. when I realized the address. Oh, okay. Or he's the attacker, and now he knows I'm onto him. He, um, he could be. The, well, we'll see. The woman was walking on the street talking on her phone when someone tapped her on the shoulder. When she turned around, a man punched her in the face so hard she fell on the ground. He huh. beat her in the face and head, and then he ran off. At the time, David Singer, spokesperson for the Portland Police, told the Press Herald, There is no indication at this time that the attacker and the victim knew each other. The suspect did not communicate anything during the assault and did not make any attempt to take anything from the victim. Not to make light of this, of her tragedy, but maybe, like me, he's annoyed by people who walk around in public talking on their phone. Oh, he could be. The attacker was described as a white man with a slim build between 5'5 and 6 feet tall. Mm -hmm. That sounds like Gordon. 
I know. He was wearing dark clothing and maybe a ski mask or hood. Although the victim screamed and neighbors came to help, none of the neighbors had seen anything before the attack and none of them saw the attacker. At the time, there had been some reports of Asian hate crimes, but this victim was Caucasian and police didn't know what the motive would have been, they said. Like, who knows what the motive is? The motive is that the guy's an asshole. I know. In a press release, David Singer said, Due to the nature of the attack, police are advising anyone who may be walking alone to take extra care to protect themselves. That includes being aware of your surroundings and staying in well-lit areas. Hmm. On Saturday, May 29th, about 12.25 a.m., a woman was walking on North Street in the East End when she was attacked, knocked to the ground, and hit multiple times. For some reason, that attack has not been reported as much as the others. But she described the attacker as white, tall, and thin with blonde hair. When you said she was hit multiple times, was she hit with his hand? They didn't say. It was okay. a really short thing. I know. They didn't say whether she was struck with, an, uh, right. with an a object. weapon or right. not, which is very annoying. On June 8th, which was this past Tuesday... A woman was walking on Brackett Street in the West End near the intersection of Pine Street shortly before 10 p.m. Someone hit her from behind with a bat or a club. A witness described the attacker as a thin white man about six feet tall wearing a gray hoodie and a baseball cap. He ran away on Carlton Street after a witness, Edward Duffy, interrupted the assault. David Singer said in a press release, Crimes like this are rare in Portland. <laughs> we would like to remind residents to always be aware of your surroundings and stay in well-lit areas. Yeah, you already said that. And when that Look. news release came out, my friend at work, Renee, forwarded it to me and said, it's something like, crimes like this are rare. This is the third one in, you know, a month or something like that. So they're not rare. Also, sometimes you can't you walk ever, in well-lit places. If you ever feel you are in immediate danger, call 911 and try to get the attention of other people in the area. Okay, David. And when the somebody hits you from behind, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the sorry. Next night, the next night, there was a neighborhood meeting at Reiki School hosted by Portland Police Officer Karina Benke. The meeting had been scheduled after the first attack in May. Officer Benke is the community policing officer and she teaches women's self-defense classes. Her training classes have a registration fee that supports the Amy St. Laurent Foundation. Mm. Amy St. Laurent was murdered in Portland in 2001. We have never covered her murder and I haven't really wanted to since it's covered so well in the book Finding Amy, which is written by Kate Flora. Is it written... It was written by Kate Flora, a friend of ours who's a main crime writer, co-written with Joe Laughlin, who was, I believe, a Portland police homicide detective at the time the murder happened. I highly recommend the book. Amy's, and Amy's murder was solved, and the murder is in prison for 60 years. Russ um, Gorman. But I don't want to go down that, yeah, right. and I don't want to go down that tangent, Rabbit but Amy's mother, Amy's mother set up the foundation to help fund women's classes to protect against crime and stuff like that. Edward Duffy, who was the guy that interrupted that attack, was at the neighborhood meeting. He told the attendees, quote, I witnessed the assault firsthand last night. It was terrifying. Mm. I was thinking, ooh, firsthand, does that mean he was actually doing it? Or mm. Edward told the Press Herald he was sitting on his front porch on Brackett Street when the victim was walking by. A man came suddenly from behind her and hit her with a club. The woman was not using her phone, but was caught by surprise and was not able to defend herself. Edward shouted at the man who took off. The victim did a phone interview with the Press Herald the day after the attack. She said, he totally surprised me. I feel okay. Fortunately, I don't have a concussion. 
but she did break a hand and severely bruised an elbow and spent the night in the hospital. Oh. She also posted on social media, quote, please share. I was assaulted with a club last night at 1027 on Brackett Street in the West End right before the Cumberland Farms. Tall, thin, white guy, gray sweatshirt. He did not try to rob me. He just wanted to cause harm. Luckily, someone yelled at him and he ran away. Seriously, do not walk alone and spread the word. This is not his first attack, end quote. Kim Sutton, West and Neighborhood Association president told the Press Herald that she set up the classes with Officer Benke so people will be prepared if they are attacked or witnessed an attack. Quote, I feel like if, God forbid, they were to be attacked or see an attack, they won't be scared to make a statement. She also said there was another attack in the area that had not been reported to police, according to several residents. Officer Kareem Benke told a group of about 50, I am begging you, please don't be talking on your cell phone when you are walking down the street. You need to be aware of your surroundings at all times. She warned that pepper spray, like any weapon, can be grabbed by an attacker and used against the victim. Quote, a lot of people think it's a cop, it's a cop in a can, but it's not. <laughs> I've never heard that cop in a can. She said a knee to the groin or a punch in the face, which she teaches in her classes, is a better way to protect yourself. Mm. The latest assault happened this past Wednesday night. This time, the victim was a man. He was sitting on a bench at Fort Sumner Park, which is on the east end of town, on North Street, where that other woman was assaulted, Mm. actually, overlooking the Bat Cove. It was about 10 p.m. He was hit on the back of the head. He was able to get himself to the hospital for treatment, and he was released the same night. And the thing I'd like to know is, which they don't say in the story, is I wonder, if, does he have long hair? I is thought some the same. Somebody might think he was a woman, like that guy, son of Sam shot, that had long right. hair. I thought the same thing. If he had long hair and, if, and sitting on yeah, a bench no in the one, dark... It may have been hard for the attacker to figure it out and just said, okay, good, at least here's somebody I can hit right now. I know, and it's funny, I just, Tuesday night I walked to vote, and I walked right by, there was a whole bunch of people sitting, because it was so hot. Fort Sumner Park is basically just a big grassy flat thing that that has benches and has a view of the back cove, and people like to sit there because there's a breeze and stuff, and it's just weird. It was light when I walked by, but but there was a ton of people sitting there. Right, but I do want to say, too, if he feels the need to hit people, women are vulnerable, but somebody yes. sitting sitting on a bench, whatever their gender may be, with their back to him, he, f- yes. he probably figures, I've got a good chance to hit and run away without well, this person. True. And also, it's almost like he had just done it the night before. Wasn't he? Yeah, it was yeah. Tuesday night. It's almost like he's like, I'm going to do it in a different neighborhood because... They were making such a big deal about it on the West. I don't know. It was right. it's weird. Anyway, police chief Frank Clark said in a statement on Thursday, such random assaults are not mm. commonplace in the city of Portland. Our officers and detectives are working diligently to identify the person or persons responsible for these cowardly attacks and hold them accountable for their actions. David Singer told the Press Herald that the police were not going to release any photos or videos yet. Mm. But... The most recent West End victim did post a security camera shot of a guy who someone said was peeping in their bedroom window, a tall, thin, white guy. Police Mm. told the Press Herald that people should not post such images online because they need to protect the integrity of the investigation as well as people's right to privacy and safety, which is true. If the image isn't very good and it looks like somebody else or something that can, you know, cause Mm. problems. I'm of two minds. 
on that. I am too. I am too. Well, I feel like if you have an image like that, share it with the police. The assaults that happened in October 2020 in the West End were different. Both these happened on the same night. Both the victims were walking, and a car followed them. In the first incident, the driver pulled over and asked for directions. He offered the woman a ride. When she declined, he got out of the car and attacked her. He punched her in the face and knocked her to the ground and tried to get her into his car. There were witnesses, so he ultimately drove off. The second one was a woman a few blocks away from the first attack. The driver did the same thing. He followed her, then stopped and opened his window. This time, the woman ignored him and took out her phone to make a call. When he saw her calling someone, he pulled a U-turn and took off. Police told the Press Herald that they have a suspect in those incidents, and they believe he is not the same person as in the recent attacks. The victim chose not to press charges against him, so they're not doing anything, which Uh to me is, I don't I have an opinion about that. Yeah. I, I but, don't know why it should be um, up so to victims. I'll keep you posted. I think with something like that, there were witnesses, though. He punched her in the face. I mean, also, a few things. First of all, I don't think it should be up to victims whether to press charges. I think if there's evidence and the police know who did it. And also, uh, you hear a lot, well, if they didn't see it, blah, blah, blah. But if they know who it is, there's other things you can do to figure out if this person's a danger. And one of my issues with things like this is you feel like that the police treat them like they're each in their own little vacuum. Mm-hmm. That there's not some overall issue they should be looking at. And I know we talked about, particularly in the Sarah Everard episode, about how it shouldn't be up to victims or potential victims to protect themselves. Exactly. Although, I will say, not just because it annoys the fucking shit out of me, but it is not a good idea to walk down the street talking on the phone. It's just not. You're putting yourself in danger in many ways, and even if you think you're this super person who can be completely aware of everything around you and talk on the phone, you can't. And to tell you the truth, when I'm talking to somebody who is either walking down the street or driving or at the grocery store talking on the phone, I find it very annoying and I find that they're not really like sometimes on my job when I'm interviewing somebody they're doing that stuff and I find they're not really listening to my questions or answering them well but that aside I mean it is up to people in general to to be smart but situations like this put the onus on people who are potential victims to be smart instead of for instance one thing that would really tremendously help and Portland is not a big city would be to bring back cops walking the beat when you see police Mm -hmm, in portland and other cities they're in their car frequently when it's warm out with the windows up or when it's cold out not engaging with people not if if police were out walking the beat then they would get to know people people would get to know them people would feel safer Mm -hmm. people would feel less able to commit random attacks because even the cop, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a cop sitting somewhere in his cruiser doing whatever they're doing with their little computers or shit or talking on their cell phones and somebody goes by speeding 20 miles an hour over the speed limit or does something else and the cop's oblivious. And as far as sharing images, on one hand, yes, it could endanger someone who isn't the person who did it, blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, when the cops keep saying, you know, these are rare, instead of saying, yes, this is an issue, I think it's up to the people to do what they can to protect each other. Especially because, you know, eyewitness accounts can be faulty, especially when something sudden happens, as you see with this. 
they, they're given different, like, hair colors and that type of thing. I know. Like, even, you know, if you had to, even though you looked at him and talked to him for a while, the guy in your doorway the other day, like, you couldn't say what kind of shoes he was wearing. You could guess, yeah, right? I know. If somebody's peeping Tom, which is a gateway to other shit. Exactly. And somebody has images, fucking put them all over the place. I think people, it's just like your guy in the doorway in a way, although you weren't physically harmed, people see something like this and say, well, you know, on one hand, yeah, it's bad, he's hurting people, but on the other hand, worse things happen. But this is how Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, started hitting people over the head on the street randomly with a hammer and running away. And you can poo-poo that like the police in New Yorkshire did. And I would recommend Laura Richards' Crime Analyst podcast for an in-depth thing on that but people have to learn police and the public that little things peeping times people randomly hitting somebody and running away are not innocent simple things and that's what david berkowitz the son of sam he that was one of the first crimes he did he stabbed a woman and ran away because they're trying it out and then they escalate when they get away with it so that was, that's very interesting. It's It'll be so, interesting to I see know. what happens. I hope they catch somebody. Yeah. What if it was Gordon, though? Yeah, although it doesn't really seem like something Gordon would do. But that's what but he would want you to think. That's true. Yeah. And he didn't answer your email. I know. Although it was just a little while ago, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Anyway, so. So I guess that comes to but me. Now- I'm doing something a little different with this episode. The one we're recording tonight is part one, and part two won't come for a while. In fact, there may be a part two and a part three, and I'll explain at the end. Oh. Yeah. My sources for the story were almost exclusively the Bangor Daily News and the Associated Press, which I think got most of its information from the Morning Sentinel, which is Waterville, Maine's daily newspaper. I didn't have access to, like, the archives at the State Library and stuff, and they're not on newspaper.com, so I had to rely on the BDN. Mm. I I just want to say, too, I know, or I speculate, that people think probably that we talk an awful lot about the newspaper coverage of the things we talk about. And, first of all, it's important to cite Mm -hmm. sources, but also I think it's easy for people to think that anything in a newspaper story is anything they need to know about something and it becomes obvious it's obvious with this that depending on who's covering it and stuff there's different information different perceptions i also found some court cases that were very helpful on anylaw.com and for anyone researching a crime that's been through a u.s court look for appeals and stuff on anylawjustia or govinfo.gov Because if you can find a court appeal or something, they're often very rich in detail and information that weren't in newspaper accounts. I found that too. And you'll see that here too. So let's get started. Waterville is a small city in central Maine, about 20 miles north of the state capital, Augusta. If you've listened to us much, you've heard us mention (laughs) Waterville before. It seems like there's lots of crimes. Yes. It's a small city, population about 16,000. At its height in 1960, it had about 18,000. So it's never been a big city. Yet there have been an extraordinary number of murders. (laughs) I know particularly of young women there and in the surrounding towns over the past five or so decades. For instance, we discussed Albert Cochran, who murdered at least two Waterville women. That was episode 62. Mm -hmm. 
Elbert Cochran, how many murders can you get away with? <laughs> Today we're talking about another man who killed Waterville women. So let me start from the beginning, or close to the beginning. On Tuesday night, August 9th, 1988, Geraldine Finn, a 23-year-old certified nurse's aide, was at Pete and Larry's, the bar at the Holiday Inn in Waterville, having drinks with two of her co-workers from Woodlawn Nursing Home in Skowhegan, Ruth Small and Janet Levesque. It had been a hot day with a high of 88 degrees. I looked that up in the old Farmer's Almanac. Mm. The cool bar probably felt good. Finn wasn't drinking alcohol, but was enjoying the company of her friends. At around 8.15, their attention was caught by a man who was circling the parking lot outside in a blue SUV, right outside the window, gesturing at them to come out. They didn't know him, but they went out to see what he wanted. When they got to the window of the truck, they saw the man was naked. Yeah. Yeah. He asked them if they wanted to go swimming with him. They declined and went back into the bar. Imagine that. Yeah. 20 minutes later, the same man, this time with his clothes on, came into the bar and sat with Geraldine and her friends. He told them his name was John. Geraldine danced with him, by some accounts, to five songs, and later told her friends he was going to give her a ride home to Skowhegan. Can I just say mm-hmm. that I'm the same age as her. I was 23. Uh-uh. If I had seen a naked guy who said he wanted to go swimming... And then he came in the bar. I wouldn't dance with him. Well, maybe she was an innocent girl who thought she had to be polite. Yeah, that's true. Okay, go on. Maybe it's because it was really hot out. And so the fact that he was naked in his truck <laughs> was more humorous to them than anything else. Be. But my guess is that she was, and I don't know this because as always, there's more information about him than her. But my guess is that... She wasn't just happily... I I feel like we'll never know what the full story is there. But anyway, Geraldine danced with him, by some accounts, to five songs, and later told her friends he was going to give her a ride home to Skowhegan. They were seen leaving the bar holding hands, yeah. by some accounts. Police said initially she'd left her purse behind in the bar, but she either came back and got it or, quote-unquote, John did. This will be significant later for a couple of reasons. An article in the Morning Sentinel at the time says, quote, but when the late model Chevy Blazer left the lot, it didn't go in the direction of Skowhegan, Mm -hmm. Waterville detective Joe Massey told the paper. On this point, I want to quibble. The truck could have turned right onto Main Street and gone to the ramp for Interstate 95 northbound, about 50 yards away, and then get off the next exit for U.S. Route 201 in Fairfield to go to Skowhegan. Or it could have gone left out of the parking lot and gone through Waterville to U.S. 201 and gone to Skowhegan that way. It would have been a couple minutes longer, but it's plausible, Hmm. you know, especially if one of them is like, let's get a soda or an ice cream or something. Mm -hmm. Anyway... I digress. John, quote-unquote, was a white male in his late 20s or early 30s, about 5'10", with brown hair and brown eyes. He had a tattoo on his left forearm in the shape of a diamond with a line through it. Hmm. Later, about 3 in the morning, a curious thing happened at the Big Apple convenience store. Oh, Big Apple. Big Apple plays a part again on Waterville Road, which is Route 201, and the east end of Skowhegan, which is about 15 miles northwest of Waterville. And that Big Apple is still there and still in business. 
The clerk, John Rooney, overheard a guy telling someone on the payphone that he'd been four-wheeling and his truck was stuck on a stump and he needed him to come help. He needed the person he was talking to to come help. While the man was waiting for the person he called to come, customer Richard Green came in. The man, John, apparently told him about the stuck SUV and Green offered to help. He went off with John to help him pull the pull the SUV off the stump, but they weren't successful. By later that morning, no one had heard from Geraldine, which was odd. She was a hardworking church-going girl who stayed in contact with her close friends and family. In fact, she often called her mother twice during her night shift at Woodlawn Nursing Home in Skowhegan, where, as I said earlier, she was a certified nurse's aide. She also lived with her parents and other siblings in Skowhegan. She wasn't the kind of girl to stay out all night. Her parents had moved there recently from Saugus, Mass., and paid attention to where their kids were. A few years before, their 15-year-old son had been hit by a hit-and-run driver and died, and they were extra vigilant. Police were called in, but there was no sign of Geraldine. Judging from newspaper accounts, the police played their cards pretty close to their vest as far as what they were looking for. I can't help but assume that they were on the hunt for the fellow with the blue SUV who she'd left with, And the fact he'd been naked earlier, despite the warm day and everything, had to be cause (laughs) for concern. I can't be totally certain about this, though, because, as I mentioned before, I had to rely on the Bangor Daily News. The BDN is a good newspaper, at least it was in 1988, but Bangor is an hour from Waterville, and a missing 23-year-old wasn't of as much interest. Anyway, the Sunday after Geraldine disappeared, five days after that night, she took the ride from the guy who called himself John Michael Kyes, the owner of Breezy Acres Motel on Hmm. Route 201 in the east section of Skowhegan, was out with some family members to do some firewood harvesting in the woods on the property. Route 201 is a two-lane highway that begins in Brunswick, Maine, on the coast, as a spur of U.S. Route 1. It crosses the state northwest, generally following the Kennebec River, until it veers off at a town called The Forks, where the dead and Kennebec Rivers meet, and then the road goes northwest to the border of Canada in Jackman. North of Skowhegan, it's called the Old Canada Highway. Breezy Acres Motel was, and still is, on the south (laughs) or west side of Route 201, depending on how you look at it, a little less than a mile and a half east or south of the Big Apple. And remember, that's where the guy made the phone call about the SUV being stuck. Breezy Acres Woods is about 150 yards from the road, separated from it by a meadow. Kais, the owner of Breeze Acres, noticed tire tracks on the skitter trail into the woods and, quote, a god-awful smell. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He looked around to see what was going on and found what looked like a human body covered with pine needles behind a rock pile in a watery gully. Mm-hmm. It was, of course, Geraldine Finn. Mm-hmm. It turned out she had been strangled or likely strangled. Her blouse partially pulled over her head and off one arm. It was knotted around the bare arm, effectively making both of her arms immobile. Mm. Her pantyhose were pulled down, and her bra was ripped in several places. She was lying on her stomach, and her purse was on her back, the strap knotted and wrapped around her neck. So so even if she had left her purse behind, um, she had it then. Police at the time said she was not buried, just covered with pine needles and some small branches. But, of course, reporters couldn't help but soon start saying that she was, quote, buried in a shallow grave. <laughs> they love that. And story. that, yes, 34 years later, or 33 years later, that persists to this day. And you know that's one of my big peeves. Yes. I won't go one into it. One of your many. Yes. 
Near Geraldine's body was a stump that looked like it had vehicle damage and evidence a vehicle had been jacked up there. The next day, around 3.30 p.m., less than 24 hours after Geraldine's body was found, Gerald R. Goodale of Waterville was arrested where he lived at his parents' home in Waterville's South End. It wasn't immediately clear, or even clear now, how they narrowed it down to Goodale. None of the news stories, even the ones about his trial later, are clear on how police made the connection so quickly between Goodale and the guy with the blue SUV. The naked guy. Mm-hmm. In any case, once they had him in their sights, there was plenty of evidence to confirm that Gerald Goodale was John, the guy who'd met Geraldine at the bar. The woman Geraldine was with said the guy she left with had beads hanging from the mirror of his SUV, and Goodale had the same kind of beads, identical beads to what they had seen. The tire tracks that Kai's, the motel owner, had noticed matched those of Goodale's truck, police said. Cigarette butts that were his brand were also found at the scene. And by the way, the vehicle was an SUV, but this was in the early days of SUVs and a main then, and even now they're often called trucks. Mm-hmm. So if I use that terminology, just know it was an SUV, because truck is easier to say. Goodale was also ID'd by the Big Apple clerk as the guy who'd made the phone call about his truck being stuck. Goodale's parents said he couldn't have done it. The night the murder happened, he was at home with them waiting for a phone call, which is something people had to do back in the days before <laughs> cell phones. Back then, that's right. He left home around 9.15 to go mud running in his truck, his mother, mm. Juanita, said. They said it must be a case of mistaken identity. Quote, Nothing adds up, said his father, James Goodale. It's not his character. It's a different person. But Waterville Police Detective Joe Massey said, I'm convinced we have the right guy. I'm confident that we have obtained overwhelming evidence to suggest that he murdered Geraldine Finn. So who was Gerald Goodale? And I want to interject here, too, that if I have more about Goodale... Than Geraldine Finn, it's simply because I can't find any reporting that looked closely at who she was. I'm not saying it didn't happen, just that again, my research was limited. Mm-hmm. A Morning Sentinel story, and this one from just a month ago, says neighbors described Goodale as combative and someone who spent most of his time tinkering with cars behind his parents' home. State police said he supported himself with odd jobs. That very well may have been reported by the Sentinel back in 1988, but I couldn't find it in the stories I went through, though again, most of them were from the Bangor Daily News. Anyway, Goodale's family was from the Waterville area, and he was born in Winslow, which is the town across the Kennebec River from Waterville. He dropped out of high school and joined the Army, serving for three years. When he was discharged, he moved to Florida to live with his parents, who'd moved there. They eventually moved back to Maine, to Waterville, but he stayed behind, got married, had two kids who were four and two in 1988. He got divorced and moved back to Maine. The summer of 1988, he was 29 and living with his parents in Waterville's gritty South End. He had a girlfriend, Donna McKechnie, or in some accounts, Donna McEchern, who didn't live with him, and um, his ex-wife, Stacy Goodale, who I think lived in Florida, though it's not clear. True to the description of John from the bar, Goodale was thin with dark eyes and brown hair, and from the perp walk photo in the Bangor Daily News, looks like he may have had a mullet at the time. Oh. Yeah. Well, 1988. Mm-hmm. Goodale worked in construction, and Donald Cormier had hired him part-time to do carpentry work as he remodeled apartments in the area. Cormier said Goodale was an excellent worker, and he'd known Goodale's family for 20 years. 
quote, Until it's proven different, I can only say good about him because he's mm. been good around us, Cormier said in an Associated Press story that ran in the Bangor Daily News. He's very helpful. If I needed anything done, he'd be right there to help. He was never late to the job, and he was always honest with us. Oh, wow. And my response to that is, you only know someone's always honest with you if you don't catch them being dishonest, if you get my drift. Not that everybody's dishonest, but you can't really know if someone's always honest. At his arraignment, five days after his arrest, Goodell told the court he was indigent. No assets, property, money, or savings. So attorney John Alsop, who's been in some of our episodes, was appointed to represent him. Goodale's vehicle, which by now was determined to be a Ford Bronco II, not a Chevy Blazer, as earlier had been reported, had been impounded by police after Goodale's arrest. Goodale told the judge he, and this is how the reporter put it, it's not in quotes, but that he, according to the reporter, sold the vehicle to his father on Tuesday as a gift that produced no money. So in other words, he gave the car to his father. And Tuesday was the day after he was arrested. A week after the arraignment, John Alsop withdrew as Goodale's attorney, saying he has a client who was virtually certain to be a witness for the state in Goodale's trial, so he couldn't defend Goodale. James Mitchell, who has figured in some of our episodes, became Goodale's attorney. Mm, yeah. And a week later, two weeks after the murder, he argued for bail, saying the state hadn't shown any probable cause that Goodale murdered Geraldine Finn. Judge Peter Goronides, however, said murder is a substantial crime with substantial risk, and Goodale was ordered held without bail. The bail hearing included a harness hearing. In Maine, it means that if the state wants bail denied in a capital case, it has to prove probable cause to deny bail. I won't go into the nuts and bolts, but it came about through a Maine Supreme Court ruling the year before Goodale was arrested when lawyers for a guy named Ronald Harnish argued that he was denied bail without a good reason. And we can have Matt explain it better sometime. But in any case, basically, if the state wants bail denied, they hold like a little mini trial to show why it's serious enough that the guy can't have bail. So at that hearing, Goodell's mother, father, brother, sister-in-law, and girlfriend, Donna McEachney, or McEachern, said they had never seen any viciousness from him. And viciousness is the reporter's word again, um, not mine. Unlike the earlier interview, where his parents said he'd been home until 9.15 when he'd, when he'd gone mud-running the night of August 9th, the night Geraldine Finn was killed, this time they said he was home from 5 to 8, then left, then got back home around 9, and he was there until around 9.30 when he left again, and they didn't see him until morning. Remember, it was 8.15 when Finn and her friends saw the guy sitting naked in the truck. And for those of you who may not know, mud-running is just what it sounds like. <laughs> You get in your four-wheel. You're gonna explain it. You get in your four-wheel drive vehicle and drive around in the mud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Goodale's brother, John Goodale, said that Goodale called him around 2 a.m. on August 10th, the morning of August 10th, and said he'd been out four-wheeling and his truck had gotten stuck in the mud. John went out looking for him but couldn't find his brother. In court, he couldn't remember where Goodale said he'd been stuck. Which, to me, if someone gets you out of bed at 2 a.m. and says they're stuck in the mud and you have to go out looking for them, it seems like two weeks later you'd remember where <laughs> yeah, they said they were. On Thursday, August 12th, the day after Goodale was arrested, he asked his brother and sister-in-law, Teresa, to say he'd been at their house the mm. night of mm. um, August 9th through the morning of August 10th, but they refused. They testified. Ooh. 
Good for them. The clerk at the Big Apple convenience store identified Goodale as the guy who he overheard on a phone call saying his truck was stuck on a stump. Hmm. And try to say that three times fast. Assistant Attorney General Michael Westcott argued for the state that there was evidence that Goodale, quote, hunted out, unquote, Finn. Remember, the term stalking was only in the early stages of being used. That's right. And if he had hunted her, it showed premeditation and the sentence could be longer than just for murder. There is no doubt this is a homicide, he told the court. It is not a self-defense, manslaughter, or involuntary death. This is not close to those. The risk is so great, the temptation is so great that he will flee, bail should be denied. Mm -hmm. The article, which is by Bruce Hertz, the BDN Somerset County Bureau reporter, said Westcott didn't call any police to the stand or Finn's friends who'd been with her that night. He really didn't have to, though. This wasn't the trial or even a probable cause hearing, really. It was a bail hearing designed to show he needed to stay in jail. So the prosecutor in those harnish hearings where he has to prove the guy shouldn't get bail, he doesn't want to show his entire hand Mm -hmm. to the defense as far as the trial goes. He just needs to show enough, and so that's what Westcott was doing. Jim Mitchell, the defense lawyer arguing for bail, said the state didn't prove probable cause because it didn't put its best witnesses, the people who saw Finn Mm. leave with Goodale, on the stand. The judge disagreed with Mitchell, and Goodale was denied bail. A week later, on September 9th, he was indicted for murder. I think by a Kennebec County grand jury. Goodale's trial for Geraldine Finn's murder began in May 1989. It was held in Kennebec County Court in Augusta, rather than in Somerset County Court in Skowhegan. Even though her body was found in that county, it seems like it was investigated as a Waterville crime, and um, Waterville's in Kennebec County, so hmm. I guess that's why. And I want to point out here again that the trial likely would have been covered by the Kennebec Journal, very likely by old friend Betty Adams, yes, who you'll remember from many episodes, including the one about the Grandview topless um, <laughs> coffee bar and some others. But since I didn't have access, I'm relying on the Bangor Daily News, Somerset County Bureau reporter Bruce Hertz. And it's not all his fault or whatever, but Bangor being an hour away just wasn't as interested as the local papers would have been. Anyway, Goodale's attorney, Jim Mitchell, told the court in his opening statement, this is not a whodunit. The state has their man. But he asked Hmm. that the charge be changed to negligent manslaughter. If it was, Goodale would plead guilty. He did it, but it was an accident. See, what happened is, Goodale invited Geraldine to go four-wheeling. The Ford Bronco got stuck on a stump. Goodale got out his come-along, which is a hand-operated winch, and asked Geraldine to get behind the wheel and run the motor while he winched it out. She accelerated so hard that there was smoke and fire, and he angrily approached the driver's side, tripping over the come-along, and he screamed at her. She Mm. became panicky, emerged from the truck, and began beating on him, quote, Mm. approaching him in a violent manner, unquote. I'm sure she did. Yes. He backed away and tripped over the come-along again. And Mm. she tripped to him, fell on top of him. And he put his arms around her neck to calm her. Mm. Quote, in the process of doing that, he accidentally killed her, Mitchell said. okay. Yeah. I'm surprised I haven't charged him. I know. I mean, and and know. we can talk more about that story in a bit. <laughs> but the problem with a plea deal, remember, they were saying he'd plead guilty to negligent homicide, is that both sides have to agree to it, and the prosecution wasn't playing. 
Mm-hmm. Jim Mitchell, the defense attorney, also got annoyed that Assistant AG Westcott kept making references to Geraldine Finn's blouse being used to tie her hands, her pantyhose being down around her knees, and her bra being ripped. Quote, that's an attempt to infer sexual overtones in the killing, he said. And yes, he means imply, not infer. Yes. I know that's what you guys are thinking. Anyway, quote, there will be no evidence of sexual molestation. That is not part of this crime. Mm. Goodale had agreed to a bench trial, by the way, which means no jury. And Judge Donald Alexander wasn't buying the manslaughter argument. Quote, the charge is murder and the court is not prepared to consider a lesser charge. Yes, Judge Alexander. Yes. The trial only lasted three days. Mitchell, the defense lawyer, trying to show the whole thing was an accident and reminding the judge that Goodale was willing to plead guilty to negligent manslaughter, Mitchell didn't present any defense witnesses, relying on the prosecution's burden of proof. Although he did, either during his opening arguments or cross-examination, it's not clear in the story, have a secretary from his office demonstrate how Geraldine's body was positioned when it was found. Mm. And there, I'll have more about that um, later. There's an interesting side note about that whole thing. I think it was during the cop, the testimony of the cop, who found her, but it's difficult with the bare-bones Bangor Daily News stories to really know things. Testifying were Geraldine's friends, who were with her that night, as well as the waitress at Pete and Larry's, who ID'd Goodale as the naked guy from the truck, who later came in clothed and sat with them. The Big Apple clerk also testified, ID'ing Goodale, as did the guy who'd helped him try to move the truck. Deputy Medical Examiner Ronald Roy testified for the state that it would take up to 10 minutes to strangle someone. I'm sorry, that it could take up for 10 minutes to strangle someone to death. No matter how it was done. While Mitchell didn't call any defense witnesses, he got Roy, who was the state's final witness, to admit that it could take two to five minutes, not ten. He also got Roy to admit that the fact he thought Geraldine was strangled by the purse strap was speculation, and it wasn't really clear how she'd died. The information about Mitchell's cross-examination about Roy, which was basically the crux of the defense case, was not in the BDN story. I got that from the court documents. Mitchell, in his closing arguments, also enhanced Goodale's story a little. When I read this in the BDN story, I wondered how he could do that if there was no testimony that supported it, since closing arguments had to sum up the evidence. Sure enough, it does become an issue later. But in Mm. any case, Mitchell said that when the truck got stuck on the stump... The drive shaft broke, and Goodale became enraged. Now, this is a little different from the story he told just three days before in opening arguments. This scared Geraldine, and she panicked and tried to get out of the truck. And that's when Goodale grabbed her around the neck to stop her, and again, accidentally killed her. Like I said, that's a little different nuance-wise from three days before, and we can talk more about (laughs) the story in general in a little bit. Okay. Mitchell, in his closing argument, said the most compelling testimony in Goodale's defense was that of the state medical examiner, Dr. Ronald Roy. Again, BDN correspondent Hertz didn't quote or cover any of that evidence in his stories, but in the article about the verdict, he said Roy had testified that the only way the strap could have been wrapped around Geraldine's neck, the way it was, was if it had been unclipped from the purse, looped and knotted, wrapped around her neck, and then reattached to the purse. Geraldine's body was decomposed enough, August of Maine is hot and humid, Mm. that Roy couldn't tell for sure that strangulation was the cause, but speculated it was. Her larynx wasn't broken, but he said that didn't necessarily 
necessarily mean she hadn't been strangled. Dr. Roy said that strangulation was the most obvious possibility. Mitchell said that was conjecture. It's not clear to me why Mitchell thinks that the whole thing with the purse strap is in Goodale's favor. It was found around her neck, so obviously someone put it there. If he was implying that would be too difficult to do with her struggling, keep in mind that her hands were bound with her blouse and he could have knocked her out somehow or hit and stunned her, you know, before he strangled her. She was too decomposed for them to tell if she'd had any other injuries like that. Mitchell may have made it clear why that was important, but we'll never know from the Bangor Daily News. <laughs> Judge Donald Alexander certainly didn't buy any of the defense's story. He took only 19 minutes to think about it after the closing arguments before he came out and pronounced Goodale guilty on May 11th, 1989. He said there was ample evidence that Goodale took Finn to the spot off Route 201 in Skowhegan and also that there was enough evidence to determine she'd been sexually assaulted. And to him on that, I say thank you. I get tired of people saying that if there was no physical evidence of sexual activity, despite clothing being torn off, etc., that there was no sexual assault. We still Mm -hmm. have that today. We hear that all the time. Yes, we do. There are some things that make it obvious a crime has a sexual motive or component. You don't need semen to make it clear. Exactly. Alexander said that he believes Goodell targeted Finn for a sexual assault and brought her to that place to sexually assault her. And he was persuaded that it was intentional by the knotted purse strap around her neck, as well as the fact that her arms were bound with her blouse, neither of which the defense was able to explain. After the verdict, Geraldine's sister Marie said the family was happy with it. She said Goodale hadn't shown any remorse. Quote, he laughed and chuckled. He never said he was sorry. Ugh. By the way, none of the Bangor Daily News trial stories depict Goodale's demeanor or any of that stuff during the trial, something we know the Kennebec Journal would have had. Yeah. But we have to take Marie's word for it, and I believe her. A month later, Goodale was sentenced to 75 years in the main state prison. Judge Donald Alexander at, at the sentencing said it was his responsibility to protect society from Goodale, quote, Ooh who showed a complete lack of remorse. Alexander said he didn't believe Geraldine's death was an accident. He said that Goodale stalked Geraldine, and stalked is in quotes in this story, because again, it's very early in its use in this Mm -hmm. context. Alexander said that Goodale sexually assaulted Geraldine, and her death resulted when the sexual attack, quote-unquote, went bad. Now, I just want to stop things here to say, what the fuck? How did it go bad? He tied her up, right? Is the judge saying because she struggled or got upset, Goodale had to kill her and hadn't intended to? What had he intended to do? I think a killing like that should be treated just like any other premeditated murder. Goodale set out to commit a felony and physically harm a young woman. He had to know how she'd react to that. So the whole, quote, sexual attack gone bad thing really is kind of ridiculous. So Alexander loses some points as far as Mm -hmm. I'm concerned. In any case... At least Alexander said that such stalking and premeditation make Goodale a very dangerous person. At the sentencing, Augusta psychologist Charles Robinson and George Curtis of Boston, a forensic pathologist, both testified that there was no evidence Goodale sexually attacked Geraldine, and Curtis said the disarray of her clothes was consistent with dragging the body, not sexual assault. Apparently, she was dragged about 158 feet from the car to to where her body was found, and more on that later. It ends up being significant. But Goodale, who cried and his voice shook, according to the Bangor Daily News, said, I am truly sorry. This was no murder. It was an accident. 
I can't ask for forgi mm -hmm. forgiveness because I can't forgive myself. I have not been able to sleep without tranquilizers. There is nothing I can do to replace her. Geraldine's parents, William and Sarah, and Sister yes. Marie, I know, asked for a life sentence rather than 75 years. Quote, when he murdered Geraldine, he murdered all of us, her mother said. Goodale had a slew of appeals beginning immediately after the sentence, like one was filed like a week after for a new trial. Among his appeals, he argued that Alexander should have considered the lesser charge, but that was denied by the Maine Supreme Court in 1990. Goodale's lawyer also argued that it couldn't be determined whether Geraldine had been strangled by a purse strap or an armor on her neck. There were a lot of different things. Something was filed too late and that was appealed. The whole thing about the stra strangulation, the state Supreme Court said, nah, it doesn't matter. Quote, Uncertainty as to the precise method of strangulation does not diminish or negate the sufficiency of the evidence supporting the finding that the evidence was intentional. In other words, they're saying it doesn't matter how she was strangled, she was strangled. Exactly. There were several other court appeals stretching past 2004. None of them were successful, but one in particular caught my eye. In 1999, Goodell argued in federal court for a post-conviction review for ineffective assistance of counsel. I won't go through all the legal ins and outs. It's a fairly complicated appeal, but some interesting stuff came out. Basically, he said his defense attorney, Jim Mitchell, was ineffective for several reasons. One was that he coerced Goodale into waiving a jury trial. Goodale argued that Mitchell told him, quote, prior bad acts, which we'll get to later, would prejudice a jury without telling him there are ways to keep that out of court. Mitchell said in an earlier appeal, about the same thing, that it was more that women on a jury wouldn't give Goodale much slack. It turns out that even the women in Mitchell's office thought Goodale was guilty. <laughs> Mitchell said other reasons were that the crime scene photos of the decomposing body would upset female jurors. I think maybe they'd upset the men too, I just, but that's just me. I would hope so. And also he did mention the adverse publicity about the other matter, which we'll get to in a bit. Goodell also argued Mitchell coerced him into not testifying. Mm. He said Mitchell threatened in the middle of the trial <laughs> to expose him as a liar based on information Mitchell had withheld from him for as long as eight months. And that other troubling matter that we'll talk about later might come up. Goodell's evidence for this, for the ineffective assistance of counsel, was a transcript of a conversation he and Mitchell had while the trial was in progress, along with Charles Robinson, the Augusta psychologist, who was hired by the defense. He was in this conference, but he didn't say anything in this transcript. Mitchell never called him to testify, which is another issue that I'll get to. Here's how the conversation between Mitchell and Goodell went midway through the trial. Um, and this is from a transcript. And I'm going to kind of do voices, but I'm not doing <laughs> that to make fun of them. I'm just doing that to cement who's talking. Mitchell does okay. most of the talking. But. So Mitchell says to Goodell, We have come to some conclusions that are really ultimately yours since it's your case. But I have some rather strong recommendations. I would like you to agree or not agree. But if you can't, you can make the decision tomorrow. It's still a judgment call. The first thing I've got to tell you is I know you're lying. You told me that you hadn't told anyone about this incident. Maureen here, he means um, Geraldine's murder. Mm -hmm. You told Donna McEckern, and that's his old girlfriend, about it. She told our investigator. And you told Donna that you pulled Geraldine out of the truck. Not that Geraldine jumped out of the truck, but you pulled her. Jerry responds. <laughs> I told her that she came flying at me. Then Donna got it screwed up. 
The only reason why I told her is I didn't want to tell you or anybody else was to protect her. Mitchell says, you also told Stacy, and I have the letters you wrote to Stacy. And again, this is Maureen, uh, Stacy's good ale sex wife. Jeez. Jerry responds, the ones I didn't want to tell you about was just because I wanted to protect them. Mitchell says, but you were lying to me. There's no way, way around that. And Jerry says, no, there's no way to get around it. I did lie to you about it, but I just didn't want to tell you. Just to protect- <laughs> okay. <laughs> just to protect them. And what they're talking about here, um, this is Maureen, what they're talking about here is Goodale telling Stacy, Donna, and then there's another woman from Oakland, Stephanie, different stories about what happened that night. So Mitchell says, okay, but I know you told Stacy, and she's in the air coming to Maine right this minute. She lands at 11 o'clock at night. I wasn't going to tell you that. I'll tell you what I plan to do. I plan to put you on the stand and get you to lie on the stand because you've been lying to me. And then walk her into the courtroom and say, do you see that woman back there? Are you still going to tell me the same thing? I came to the conclusion that that's a bad idea. I didn't want you to lose trust in me by pulling that trick on you. And I also think we'll have a major problem, okay? The major problem is that if I put you on the stand and you tell the truth and you're going to tell about this woman in Oakland, whom I don't know, and you're going to tell about Donna, you're going to tell about Stacy, and the state's going to have a field day. They'll get a police car, pick up Donna, pick up Stephanie. They're going to bring them in and they're going to say, Jerry just tells a story to all these girls. And they're going to get each girl to repeat the story and there's going to be something different in the stories. I don't know what it's going to be. I know what Donna said. I don't know what Stephanie's going to say, but they're going to get it screwed up. The other thing you can do when I put you on the stand, you can lie. If you lie, I have to tell the judge. That's my responsibility as a lawyer. A lot of people know that Stacy knows because of my office, everybody knows that. We've got the letter. So if you tell the truth, we've got a problem. If you lie, I've got a problem because I cannot continue to represent you. So we have a big problem, all right? That's what caused me to start rethinking about this whole case. And Maureen here again. I kind of like seeing the innards of how a lawyer talks to his client there. But anyway, Mitchell said his choices for defense were, one, to put on the whole defense case, two, to put on no case at all and rely on the weakness of the state's case, or three, to put only the professional witnesses on. He told Goodale that if he could get Dr. Roy, the medical examiner, to admit that Geraldine Finn could have been strangled by means other than a purse strap, rather than take the risks of putting Goodale on the stand or the other professional witnesses he'd said in his opening remarks that he was going to call, he'd rest without putting on a defense. Goodale agreed with him, according to the transcript, saying, I don't have to sleep on it. Just from listening to what you were saying and what Chuck Robinson, that's the um, Augusta psychologist, was (laughs) saying, I strongly agree with you about stopping after Roy. I've agreed with everything you've had to do so far, and you haven't let me down yet. Goodale also said Westcott, the prosecutor, was, quote, a damn smart man. It's scary to be up against him. Or it may have been, and this is another thing that annoys me, it's possible at this point he was being prosecuted not by Westcott, but by the AG, Fernand La Rochelle. The court document about this doesn't say. Anyway, the next day, Goodale sent Mitchell a handwritten note, and this would have been the third day of the trial, that said, If we end the trial today and give closing statements like we talked about, which I fully agree with what you said last night, it all makes sense to me. 
Goodell also said as part of his ineffective assistance claim that Mitchell didn't produce exculpatory evidence at trial, just unsuccessfully attempted to introduce it in closing arguments and through a motion to reopen the trial a week after the verdict, which failed. Goodell said two things Mitchell could have introduced as evidence that he didn't could have convinced Alexander to consider the manslaughter charge. One was testimony from the psychologist Charles Robinson and another witness, Carl Buchanan, that Goodell had injuries on his legs consisting with those one would sustain from tripping over the come-along cable, which I say, big fucking, <laughs> big fucking deal. He could have tripped over the come-along cable any time during the murder. No shit. It didn't have to be his story. I mean, he could have easily tripped over it when he was killing her and dragging her around. Just That could have just been part of his story because it's something that happened, but it doesn't mean that that doesn't mean the murder didn't happen. Right, right, exactly. He also said the testimony of Maureen Luberg-Harris, one of Mitchell's staff, would have been exculpatory. I guess they did an experiment, and I think she's the one, too, who showed during the trial how the body looked when it was found, like she, they made her lie on the floor, Ugh. but um, how Geraldine's arms were behind her back or something. But I guess they did an experiment, since she was about Geraldine's size, dragging her 158 feet to show that her pantyhose would come Ugh. down and blouse would ride up the way Geraldine's did, which I say, ugh. Mitchell ended up not doing that in court because he wasn't sure it would be admissible and um, it might be a big mistake, and he was probably right. Goodell also argued that the Boston psychologist, forensic psychologist, Curtis, should have been allowed to testify. The court found, though, that anything Curtis would testify to was already brought out on cross-examination of the medical examiner, Dr. Roy, and Goodell had agreed with Mitchell that Curtis wasn't needed. The court also found that it was unlikely that the potential testimony of Dr. Robinson, a clinical psychologist, would persuade the court differently. Although Robinson saw scars and bruises on Goodale's legs during an in-jail interview, he wouldn't be able to say how he got them. And Maureen, me, not the one who was dragged around, says all they were going to get from a clinical psychologist was he Hmm. was going to testify that Goodale had scars and bruises on his legs. I could have testified to that. Yeah. Wouldn't you have a clinical psychologist testify, like, don't you use them to testify, like, this guy isn't capable of killing someone, blah, blah, blah? Uh, Yeah. One would think. And if you're not going to have him testify to that, but just that the guy had bruises on his legs, it seems to me the state would say, well, that's great, but what did you find out about Jerry's mental health? Anyway, the court also found, like I said, that not using Maureen Harris Luberg, they kept in this court document reversing her hyphenated last name. Sometimes she's Luberg Harris, sometimes she's Harris Luberg. They agreed that not using her was a, tactically a good idea because of the uncertainty of potential in court demonstrations and the uncertainty uh-huh. of its admissibility. The court also pointed out that Mitchell did make several points that undermined the state medical examiner's testimony and, quote, at this point he had his strongest case. And the federal court also used Judge Alexander's words agreeing with them. And this is what Judge Alexander said when he rendered his verdict, which was not in the newspaper story. Quote, I would emphasize that there are some points that don't make much sense. First of all, the way the victim's clothes were found is not, in my view, consistent with the type of dragging that was asserted over a lengthy 158 feet. 
It was not... Mm-hmm. Now, here's a sentence that doesn't make sense, and they put sick after it, so I don't think they knew what it meant either. It was not the request tearing of the skirt if the brush had been as indicated to render the bra in three pieces. Now, I know that doesn't make sense, but we kind of get <laughs> what eight means, you know. I think he's basically yeah. saying that dragging, that just dragging would not have torn her skirt and bra the way that they were. Yes. Judge Alexander goes on to say, Beyond that, we are not talking about a scene in terms of the scary reaction of the victim. We're not talking about a scene 10 miles west of Jackman, and I think he's just trying to say it's it wasn't remote. We're talking about a scene that is approximately a quarter of a mile off the busiest road in Somerset County and within not too difficult walking distance of downtown Skowhegan. It appears unlikely that somebody is going to get as rabidly afraid so you would have to be restrained as had been suggested. I find the alternative explanation not credible. So that was Judge Alexander, yes. and I have to say I agree with him. I find it not credible, too. He- we always see in almost all of our cases, in many of our episodes, that if the evidence shows the guy was at the scene, he has some idiotic story that he thinks is going to make sense to people, and it usually involves the victim <laughs> attacking him in some way, and then yes. some be- medically implausible reason she died. I can't even count how many episodes we've had with that in it. One of the other things about Mitchell strongly urging Goodale not to take the stand, which the appeals court agreed with, Mitchell harbored legitimate concerns, the court decision said, that despite such protections of being able to say previous bad acts wouldn't be introduced, Goodale's testimony remained risky. Goodale himself may have inadvertently referred to that other matter that I've mentioned. And so what was this other Mm -hmm. matter I keep referring to? Yes. That matter hung over Goodale's appeal and all of his many, many appeals. It hung over the sentencing and the trial. It's likely the reason Judge Donald Alexander wouldn't consider the manslaughter argument. It hung over the bail hearing and the arraignment shortly after Geraldine Finn's body was found. It's probably likely the reason the police were able to zero in on Gerald Goodale so quickly before he was arrested. So what was that other matter? Eight months before Geraldine Finn's murder, on December 23, 1987, Janet Brochu, 20, of Winslow, the town across the river from Waterville, told her mother she was going to cash her paycheck and go to McDonald's. Brochu ended up meeting up with friends, first going bowling on West River Road in Waterville. Then they went into town to T. Woody's, a bar in the concourse, which is basically a strip mall in a parking lot in the middle of Waterville. Thank you, Urban Renewal. But that's hmm. a story for another day. Brochu was at some point in T. Woody's asked for her ID, and she was only 20. When it showed she was underage, she was asked to leave. She Aww. left around midnight with two guys named Lou and Jerry, who the group met at the bowling alley earlier, and who followed them to T. Woody's. The guy said they'd take Janet home. Janet had left her purse behind, and Jerry came back in to get it, and told her friends hmm. he'd take care of her. That's the last anyone saw mm. Janet Brochu alive. Janet was diabetic and required insulin injections twice a day, her mother told the Morning Sentinel at the time. And so they became very concerned when she didn't come home. She lived with her parents. She was a dietary assistant at the Seton Hospital, a mid-Maine medical center in Waterville. On January 1st, a week later, police reported they tracked down Jerry and Lou, the two guys who left the bar with her. Both men said they left in separate cars on December 23rd without Janet. I think you've probably guessed by now that Cherry was Gerald R. Goodale. 
He told police he was the last person to see Brochu alive. She was standing in the parking lot outside T. Woody's when he left. He said he'd refused to give her a ride home when she'd thrown up in the parking lot. Hmm. It's funny he said he was the last person to see her alive, because that's one of my peeves when people say that, and I always say, no, the murderer was the last person to see her alive. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned in this case, he was correct. Maine State Police took over the case in January. On March 18, 1988, about five months before Geraldine Finn was killed, and almost three months after Janet Brochu had disappeared, Christopher Anthony, who owned a dam on the Sebastocook River in Pittsfield, a town about half an hour north of Waterville on Interstate 95, found Brochu's partially frozen, algae-covered body washed up against a metal grate that protected the hydropower generators at the dam. She was nude. Goodell was questioned at least twice in her murder, and his truck was searched. But her body was also too decomposed to determine a cause of death. At the time, DNA testing and evidence was in its infancy. It was unheard of in Maine, even if anything was preserved on a body that had been in a river, albeit a frozen one, for nearly three months. No one had been arrested in Brochu's murder by the time Geraldine was murdered in August. Deputy Attorney General Fernand LaRochelle said there were some similarities in the broadest sense of the term between the two murders Mm. when Goodale was arrested, but they weren't sure the two murders were connected. Some similarities. Hmm. I totally disagree with that, but anyway. At Goodale's sentencing for Finn's murder in June 1989, La Rochelle said that Goodale had information about another serious crime but refused to cooperate with police on it. Bruce Hurst, the BDN reporter wrote in his coverage of Goodale's Harnish Bail hearing shortly after Goodale was arrested for Geraldine's murder that witnesses testified that Goodale had been questioned in Brochu's murder. But he didn't say who those witnesses were in his stories, and the story also said that Assistant AG Michael Westcott didn't call any police to the stand, so I'm not sure who would have testified that Goodale was questioned if it weren't the police. I don't know. know. The Morning Sentinel reported that La Rochelle at Goodale's sentencing in June 1989 on Finn's murder asked for a life sentence saying that Goodale had committed, quote, another very serious felony without remorse or regard for the victim's family. It's curious to me that the Bangor Daily News reporter did not report that in his article on the sentencing. That is weird. He did say in his article, La Rochelle knew something about a felony and wouldn't talk, but he paraphrased, and that's a lot different from what the Sentinel reported La Rochelle said. So the reporter either misunderstood, or he and or his editor had ants in their pants and didn't want to come out and say it. They can report what was said in open court without fear of being sued, because if they said it, you can report it, but I don't know. La Rochelle confirmed to the Morning Sentinel after that court hearing that he was talking about Brochu's murder. Mm. He told the Sentinel <clears throat> that a pre-sentence investigation found investigators had recently had questioned Goodale about Brochu's death. Quote, Goodale told them that he didn't do it, but that he knows who did, but he won't mm. tell who it was, La Rochelle said. So, for 34 years, Janet Brochu's murder hung over Gerald Goodale. Then... On May 14, 2021, just a month ago, a Somerset County Superior Court grand jury handed up an indictment. Goodale, 61, an inmate at the Maine State Prison in Warren, where he is still serving his sentence for killing Geraldine Finn, was charged with Janet Brochu's murder. 
Colonel John Cody of the Maine State Police said the indictment and arrest were the result of work by, quote, state, local, and county investigators, prosecutors, and skilled scientists who never relented in their pursuit of the truth and for justice for this victim, her family, and friends. But that's all they're saying for now. There's no affidavit on file or anything else. When Goodale is tried, whenever that is, given the court back up because of the pandemic, you will hear part two of this story. Ooh. And that is my report. Thank you. I'll be interested to find out what exactly led them you know, I think, do it. well, I think it has to be some kind of forensic. I so, think so, too. I think uh, DNA has finally, yeah. and actually, they said in the stories that they had the evidence to indict back in November, but because of the backup, because of the pandemic, uh, the indictment wasn't until yeah, May. Yeah, it is, and luckily they preserved the evidence, and... Yeah, um, and I think finally, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward. Yeah, and I'll have more, too, about her disappearance and everything now that our state of emergency, yay, is being lifted June 30th. I should be able to get to the state library. What I'm thinking of doing is when the trial's about to start, I'll do part two, Janet Brochu's disappearance and the discovery of her body. And, and there's a lot that's gone on with Goodale over the years, related to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's always been, it wasn't, it was a surprise he was finally charged, but it wasn't a surprise yes. who was finally charged. Exactly. And then, so maybe I'll do a part two before the trial. And then once the trial is done, a part three with what happened Ooh. at the trial. Okay. Can't um wait. I meant to, and I will in my next part on this, there are so many young women who are killed in the Waterville area in the 70s and 80s and 90s, or killed or disappeared. It's really weird. You know, it's not a big populated area. Many it's of our just episodes. weird how many of our episodes. I know. Yeah, yeah. That's what's weird to Including, me. I mean, uh, and it's not like I'm, I have it in for Waterville. It's just, you know. I know. It's just I one of up- those... One of those things. And it, and it isn't like it's this dangerous town or anything. You know, I think it's just main, be a main, but if, and now we have a, a recommendation, don't we? And then, yes. <laughs> so we're doing a duo NNW. Exactly. A about, joint NNW. Yeah. The celebrated HBO. Limited run series, I guess they call it. Mayor of East Town. Kate Winslet plays a cop in a small town in the Philadelphia area of Pennsylvania. And there was a a young woman who disappeared a year or two before. Mm -hmm. And a young woman is killed and she's investigating. And I think that's probably all we have to say to set it up for people. And there will be spoilers. Yeah. So should we start? Yes. So first is bad reenactments, which is not applicable. Right. Narrative cliches. Narrative cliches. I'm taking away a point. Mm-hmm. Before I, I get going too much, I, I do want to say it may sound like I'm being very hard on this show. I know everybody liked it. I liked it too. There were a lot of good things about it. But maybe it's, I don't know, because I write mysteries or something, there are certain things I look for. I, and I did have some issues. The issues don't mean I didn't like it. But narrative cliches, there were many. Um, which is why I'm taking away a point. First of all, 
the scene, it's either the last episode or the second, it's the last after her, that cute little partner she had was shot. And you knew that poor guy was gonna get shot Mm -hmm. at some point, which was a narrative cliche right there. Even before she walked up to his mother's door, I knew his mother was gonna slap her. Mm -hmm. I knew Zabel, the partner, was gonna be shot. Mm -hmm. There were several other things like that. Her vaping which was totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I know they want to show like a flaw or a, a weakness, you know, but I, yep. I found it distracting and unnecessary. I mean, she had enough shit going on that um, they didn't need to have her doing that annoying vaping shit. And those are just mm-hmm. a few of them. There were more okay. multiple narrative cliches. So I'm taking a point off as well. I can talk about some of the other ones. Let's see. Divorced husband. He's got a younger wife. They broke up because they're dysfunctional because one of their kids died. I sound like I'm really like, I don't know. I sound... Yeah. Like, for instance, her first first meeting with the grief counselor, I could have recited what she was going to say word for word. Yes, exactly. So there's all these cop shows where... And I know it's true that they have, a lot of cops have bad marriages or something happens and blah, blah, blah. But it's just like every single one, I think. But there were just a lot. A dissipated writer. He was as well. The show reminded me and made me start watching again, Happy Valley. Yes. And there are very, a lot of parallels. And I can talk about that at the end. Uh, yeah, so I'm taking a point off for narrative yeah, cliches too. because it's just, uh, for the reasons you said, and there are ma- there are many more. Okay. So. Racial gender obtuseness. I'm taking away a point. Um, Even though there are many... Explain. Even though there are many characters of color, (laughs) including the black police chief, which has gotten to be kind of a cliche in its own, the only black friend of the middle-aged women friend group is a troubled woman whose brother is a drug addict who lives in the basement sometimes, kind of like bubbles in the wire. Mm Mm-hmm. There are a lot of secondary black characters, but the only consequential black characters were as cliche as you can get. The hardworking sister of the drug-addicted black brother. And you knew what was going to happen with him, Mm -hmm. too. Okay, if you want to have those characters make another woman, why is there only one black woman on the basketball team? Is this the Smurfs, like where there's only one female? Have two black women who were on the basketball team. Maybe that was the only racial obtuseness, although I said all the other people of color were non-pivotal characters. Even the police chief wasn't a pivotal character. They were cardboard cutouts, so they lose a point. Potential girlfriend of oh, yeah. the daughter. Right. Uh, she wasn't pivotal, though. Not really. Yeah, that's true. She wasn't. Okay. So. That's fair. Next is lack of good visuals. I'm not taking anything off No, of I thought it was I great. The visuals are good. Yeah, I think it yeah. really captured that kind of town. I mean, I'm not from there. Mm-hmm. It didn't try to glam it up. And, yeah. and that's one way it was kind of like Happy Valley. I think it showed the way they live and the, the way that those towns in that part of the country look and stuff. Yes. Missing pieces. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking anything off of that. I am. You? No? Yes. Okay, go ahead. First of all, to me, the biggest missing piece, and this could also go to storytelling, but I have another, that nobody, nobody seemed to recognize that the teenage girl who quote-unquote had the affair with the guy was underage, 
And it was sexual assault. Oh, yeah. I was gonna, that was going to be in my other part. The baby yeah. was 14 months old, and the girl died when she was... Erin, right? Her name was? Died when she was 17. Yes. So she would have yes. been 15. No way you can do the math where she yes. was at 15 when she had sex unless the baby was premature and she just turned 16. I mean, there is a little tis tisking here and there, but nobody... So they're using... And this could go in storytelling, too. They're using this as a plot device... That's where I was... Rather yeah. than something that people should be seriously, seriously concerned about. There was also, at the end, and here comes a big spoiler, everybody acts like it's somehow Mare's fault that she got to the truth. So, like, it's better to have a 13-year-old live with the fact that his father went to prison for a crime he didn't commit, that the kid committed, than for her to find the truth. And the whole reason Lore quote-unquote, lost her family is because her husband sexually assaulted a teenage girl. Like, I can understand maybe Laura and people blaming Mare, but, like, everybody in the show, it's like a given that the viewers and everybody else are going to think, like, this is some fatal flaw of Mare's because of her grief about her son dying of suicide, that she had to get to the truth on this and destroy someone else's family. Instead of the fact that, that in the long run, it would have been far more damaging for the for the kid to live with the fact that his father went to prison. And maybe on some moral scale, we're supposed to be okay no with shit. the father going to prison because he did sexually assault a teenage girl, but nobody mentions the fact that he sexually assaulted a teenage girl. I know. You know, so... I know. I, I know. So I found that there were other smaller yeah. holes. There were timeline timeline issues. For instance, the whole thing with Mare's ex-husband bringing diapers. Mm-hmm. So supposedly... Erin was still in school, but she left school to have the baby. So when did this, like, there were a couple things like that where the timeline was just totally, totally didn't make sense. Inaccuracy, anachronisms, I don't have any. I think some of the people from the area didn't like the accents from what I heard. I didn't think their accents sounded that bad, but I'm not from that part of uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I don't care about the accents because being from Maine, the epicenter of the bad TV accent, they have some weird little dialect accent in one county in Pennsylvania who gives a shit. Okay, what's your problem? my inaccuracies, first of all, I don't know if the guy who wrote it is Catholic or not. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, okay. uh, but taking uh, off half a point for that. But they should have just made Father Mark a priest, not a deacon. A deacon is usually a lay person who is, like, married with a family and stuff, who doesn't travel from parish to parish, but is somebody who's a member of that parish yes, who does exactly. stuff to help the priest. So I'm not sure why they made him a deacon. Maybe in other churches, deacons are different. But in the Catholic Church, a deacon is so I don't know why they didn't just make him a priest, even though I sound like I'm some raging Catholic, but, you know, I'm a recovering Catholic, but, um, (laughs) but, or non-recovered former Catholic, but I know enough about Catholic, and there were some other things about the Catholic stuff that was just, that they just got wrong. Okay, if they wanted to get a Catholic Church pedophile subplot in there, fine, but do it right or have them be protestant and be pedophiles i don't care and so these a lot of these families are irish catholic and yet they all just have two kids give me a fucking break i know i have another inaccuracy okay. no nowhere no place no way is going to have an author reception <laughs> with piles of hardcover books 
that came out 30 fucking years before. That doesn't fucking happen. His book would just have had to been released for it, for there to be fucking piles of hardcover and him signing well, them and all this shit. My my the my, book the came out in nineteen ninety two. Listen, okay, maybe he bought hundreds <laughs> of them at the time, and he still has them and brings them around with him, and that's how he gets rid of them. Yeah, I don't know why you're making excuses for him. And I thought it was funny that he, at the end, he was going to Lewiston, Maine. It's like, yeah, I'll stay out of the bars there. Mr. Cliche, sad, pathetic, one-book writer. Whatever. At least he's still milking it. Well, I felt like uh, women of a certain age were supposed to think he was some romantic character, and I just thought he was was a pathetic loser. But that's me storytelling that's when i'm taking a point off for the uh statutory rape thing are you taking a point Um, off for anything else well it's hard because we've got the cliche but i will say uh, as far as other cliches when the woman with cancer thought that the (laughs) that somebody had her daughter yes that was kind of cliche and stuff and i knew what was going to happen yes i am taking away a point as well as far as things being used as plot devices, the school cafeteria scene where the poor little girl with Down syndrome was... Oh, she's so cute. I know. And the kid was throwing food and yelling at her and stuff. And then her brother went and beat the guy with his tray. It's like nobody gave a shit about the girl or what happened. Even her mother. She says to the boy, oh, what happened? Oh, you know, like, oh, why did he get so mad? And it's like... Bullying of a child with disabilities is just used as a plot device so that the brother can act out and the mother can ask what's wrong and then he can give her the false information about the father's affair and nobody thinks maybe he was mad because he saw everybody, these kids making fun and throwing food at his sister and everybody laughing at her and nobody helping her. And, And it's like it was never mentioned again. The poor girl with Down syndrome was just yet another plot device. Yes, I know. Mm -hmm. as a writer there are a lot of things that are plot devices but what you're supposed to do is give them some padding not just throw them in there the thing that bugged me about that whole scene even though you know i know it's just a tv though but nobody intervened when the kid was teasing her right. which upset me because it's the way they are now about bullying there's no way that, I, that kid would have gotten away right. with that the other kids still could have attacked it would have been more effective if People had just intervened and the kid had gone ape shit. Yeah. Freshness. I'm taking a point off. <laughs> yeah, me too. You? Yes. I'm going to take half a point because I'm conflicted that it's so cliche. In fact, I must feel like the guy who wrote it watched Happy Valley and a bunch of other British. And Broadchurch. And Broadchurch. Yeah. On the other hand, I thought it was fresh as far as American. Yes, exactly. That's what I was just going to say. For American cop shows, it's fresh. It has the feel and, and, of and the a irony is the irony is half the people in it are fucking British or Australian. I know. I know. Too. But I am taking a point off because I just felt like you know, repetition, I'm not taking anything off. No, I could, eh, and I'm not going to take any points off. Beating the drum, no. I'm not going to take I could for, (laughs) well, no, for her 
emotional battering of herself. You were kind of hit over the head. You haven't confronted your grief, blah, blah, blah. In fact, the whole plot, her solving the case is a plot device for her to confront her grief. And I felt it could have been done more subtly. But I'm not going to take away a point because I... Partially just because I don't want this to be any lower on points. Because I did think it was good. I binge watched it. I think it was saved by the acting. Oh, well, that's what I was just going to say. Why it, The reason it was good was the, was the acting. Yes. Um, I mean, that wasn't the reason. It was still pretty good. Um, but And Mom loved it. Mom, Mom mm. thought it was wonderful. She wants to watch it again. After watching that, I'm like, God, there's so many. And, and I didn't remember a lot of details about Happy Valley. I remember the overall. I remembered certain things about it, but I didn't remember the storyline. The family so dynamics. Had, um, yes. So in Happy Valley, the sister is divorced and husband has a young wife one of their kids died she hung herself as well their daughter who who had issues she left a baby behind that the grandmother you know the mother uh, Catherine is raising Catherine's sister lives with her not her mother she has another kid who's uh doesn't live at home uh, he's an adult kind of just those right there there's so many i didn't mind that about about maravista i didn't mind the fact that it barred from a lot of things but the family dynamics like the acting gene smart is awesome uh, yeah. kate winslet is awesome um i feel like the male characters aren't as well developed yeah. as the female characters and they those guys don't get a lot to work with except for her poor uh partner zabel who ends up getting yeah, shot for time. because he was the buddy and the buddy gets shot i feel like the author was trying to tell a certain type of story and he or the author the whatever you call them when it's a tv series and i know he wanted to depict his town and the kind of people he grew up with and i think in that instance it, i think it's good like the originality of the basketball team having its 25th yeah. That drew me in right at the beginning that her and the family dynamics is cliche as some of that was. I thought it was more deeply realized, but I do think he was working from kind of a template that um, yeah. that we've seen before. And I feel mm-hmm. like I know it's easy to say sitting here in my living room not doing that for a living but i feel like it would not have been difficult to make it a little better and less cliche you could have had a lot of the same things happen differently so that they weren't cliche Mm -hmm. you could have not had the plot devices be just screaming i'm a plot device and 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 it just really bothered me the whole black i mean people should recognize that by now by 2021 mm-hmm. that you don't have your only pivotal black characters as as kind of a sad sack a woman whose brother is a drug addict you know yeah i know you yeah. you can have those characters like and i know people can point out oh there were other the police chief was black but those were all secondary one-dimensional characters yeah and like the rookie cop it was definitely a step up from the usual american a police procedural i mean talk about cliches and shit and i would like to see more of it i'd watch it again i'd watch a sequel i would yeah mom mom wants a second like you said and the acting was really good yeah i thought kate winslet was so so good 
in the role. I usually like her and everything, yeah, but it's not I always like I was her. ever like, wow, she's right. so great. You know, I just always... And people can complain about the accents, but when I was watching that, I wasn't thinking her. I wasn't thinking the young woman no. who played Siobhan. I wasn't thinking Guy Pierce who played the dissipated writer. I wasn't no. thinking any of them were not American. Me neither. I thought they were great. I had to pay for Happy Valley. It was not yeah. on Netflix anymore. Yeah. I had to buy it on Amazon Prime, mm. but I wanted to watch it so badly after watching Mare. And it really is... If the guy who created... And I watched some of the... Um, that's how I know about the guy who created it, because I watched some of the extra oh, yeah, I did material. Yeah. If he didn't watch Happy Valley before he made this, then he somehow channeled it. And I'm not he saying did. he plagiarized or copied, but I do think it's... Just but also even with Broadchurch, yeah. I was I have to say that I, there were some surprises in the plot. I yeah. was surprised that that girl was alive. But anyways, I do late. recommend it despite our low. I and, do. and I know the kind of things that annoy me. There are things that bug me that don't bug anybody else. And but anyway, I recommend it. Yes, I do too. And you know you can find us on like social media stuff, and you can donate to our patreon like our facebook page we've had lots of likes lately yeah we have and we thank our patreon supporters who are loyal I and thank you all um, you're and, all very loyal you to know us. we know that there are people who have stuck with us for a long time and they're awesome yes. and we appreciate the support you know yes thank you um, you know we have some expenses it may not seem like it to listen <laughs> to it but um but we use clean feed for our remote um recording which has worked out i think it's worked out really well after, yes it has you know and we have to have our hosting blueberry our hosting site yes. and we have to pay for our website mm-hmm. and um yes. happy end Thank of the pandemic everybody. to everybody out there yeah and, um, everybody end of the state yeah, of emergency don't, don't go wild okay yes okay bye bye yeah. Um, mom and dad are down there watching that, that infomercial oh, thing Jesus again, Christ. and singing along to the... Oh, God. Well, at least it <laughs> entertains them. They watch you know, it, like, every Saturday night. I used to say to them... I think it's, a, like, a show. I know. I used to say to them, you guys know this is an, a commercial, right?